became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, to Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them as his chariots to be, appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out to your king from whom you've chosen over yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them, them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, this is a huge transition for Israel, what they're asking for. Um, you know, this is a, a time where the, judge, the period of judges end and the period of the monarchy begin. And that's what we're seeing in Samuel. And Samuel, the book of Samuel really focuses on four characters, four main characters. It focuses on Samuel, who is the judge, the last judge of Israel. And he's a great judge. A very good judge. Uh, secondly, it focuses on Saul, the very first king of Israel. Third, it focuses on King David, who establishes a kingdom that lasts for 300 years or so, or, or for, for three, several generations. 
um, until eventually exile. And the last character, of course, is always Jehovah. He's throughout this. And their interactions between those main characters. All the rest are just uh, side characters. They're, they're role players, but they are extras. But these are the main characters that we see in the book of Samuel. Now, I don't know if you noticed in your bulletin, a couple things um, I want you to notice in your bulletin. One, at the very beginning, is that we're starting to do is called the pastor's note. And so every, every week, whoever's preaching, whether it's Daryl, myself, or, or Dr. Milton, we're going to be writing a pastoral note here that usually has to go with the sermon. So you can read it ahead of time uh, whenever you pick up the bulletin or later on, but it usually is in conjunction with that. So I want to highlight that. Another thing you may notice is that the sermon today is called You Asked For It, You Got It. Okay? Now, if you're, you're older, probably than 30, you understand where that comes from. So I wanted, what I wanted to do is throw out about 10 different ad slogans to you. And, and I really I want you to do something a little different. It's participatory. So I want you to shout out what you think it is. Okay? So I'm going to throw out the slogan, and I want you to shout out what you think it is. All right? Number one, it takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Time X, that's right. Okay, all right, it's all right. Hey, even if it's wrong, just shout it out. That's all right. All right, Time X, that's right. All right, a little bit older. Uh, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, older, what a relief it is. There you go. Isn't this amazing? I've never even had alcohol seltzer in my life, and yet you know it, okay? Uh, the quicker picker upper. Bounty. Yeah, just keep shouting them out. Even if it's wrong, just keep shouting them out. That's good. Bounty. <laughs> All right, this one was made from 1950 and still today. You're in good hands with... Yeah, isn't that amazing? It's been around for that long. Where's the beef? That's right. Uh, I think 1984. Please don't squeeze the... Yes. Ta yeah, some of, these, some of the college students are going, What? Yeah, it's, uh, we'll talk about it later, all right? Um, time to make the donuts. Dunkin' Donuts. Remember that guy with a little mustache getting up, making the donuts? There we go. Okay. Um, where do you want to go today? There you go. There you go, Daryl. That's right. Only one can answer that. Well, because everybody else is saying the answer to that is the Apple Store. All right. Uh, <laughs> where do you want to go today? There you go. Have a blank and a smile. There you go. Okay. And you asked for it, you got it. There you go. All right, so what in the world does that have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, it does. It does, though may loosely, but uh, Israel asked for a king. And so what we're seeing in this chapter is they asked for it, and they're going to get it. And we see the rest of the, 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 the scriptures in the Old Testament is what they asked for. So all the iterations of being a good king that follows after their, their father's footsteps and then the bad kings that do not follow, that raise up all the idolatry, that create evil in Israel to those that get taken away, to those that make a lot, you know, alignments with other nations, all that happens right here. All that emanates. This is ground zero of the monarchy. And so what I'm going to do this morning, I really want us to, to I like to organize what we're going to talk about. So if you're taking notes, there's three main sections, is, and it's really typical Bible study. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to, there'll be a section I'm going to talk about observations about this scripture. What does it say? 
And then I'm going to move to interpretations. What does it mean? And then lastly, application. What does it mean to me? Or what does it mean to us? So observations, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? And then application, what does it mean to me? Okay. So a couple of things on observations. One of this that we really see a couple of things happening. First, on the very first chapter here, or the first verse, it says that Samuel had some sons, and he became old, and he had sons to judge over Israel. And they were judging down in the southern part of Israel. So he was in the northern part doing his little circuit, and he sent his sons down. They were of age, probably got of age 30, and he sent them down. So if you look at some of the age um, of how old Samuel was, he was anywhere from 50 to 70 years old. Okay, at this point, had sons. But it says that they were evil. They took bribes. So people were paying them off. Right before they were going to the judge and they were in the wrong, you know, they rear-ended someone else and they paid the judge and said, really, I didn't. So if you could just rule in my favor, then the judge would rule in his favor. That's what his sons were doing. Matthew Henry said, it grieves a good man when his progeny is not treading in his footsteps, but treading on them. And that's exactly what Samuel's sons were doing. Now, his sons probably weren't as bad as Eli's sons, who were very evil, but they were a degree of evil because they were perverting justice. And that is the one thing a judge has to offer is honesty, integrity, and yet that is the one thing that was darkened. Now, some of y'all have... um, some of you have allergies just like I do. And right before I came up here, I had to put drops in my eyes. Because uh, the other day, all the pollen, it was so bad. And, and McCray, my daughter, was driving with me. She was riding with me. I, I had the thought. My eyes were so covered over with, with tears and, and reaction to pollen that I had the thought of maybe I could just have her drive. She's 14. But it was so bad that I thought she could probably drive better than I at that point. Well, that's exactly what a bribe does is it says, the scripture says, it closes your eyes, that it blinds the way of justice. And that's what Samuel's sons were doing. So his progeny falters. Secondly, we see the elders gather. Um, Now, it's interesting, they didn't come in in verse uh, 4. They didn't come. It doesn't say they came with pitchforks and torches. They weren't a mob. They were the representative elders of Israel. Maybe one elder um, or tribe from every tribe. So there may have been as, as little as 12. Maybe it was multiple. But it was a group of men that came, and they, they came orderly, and they came to Samuel. And so they, they came to complain about his sons. They're like, if you're getting old. I mean, it's kind of a, a slap in the face. Basically, they're saying you're getting old. And your sons, we're, we're going to talk about them. They're, they're, they're perverting justice. So, and, and, and by the way, that's a right analysis. Samuel was getting old, right? He couldn't do the circuit as much. And it was correct that his sons were not just. They had right observations, but they made the wrong conclusion. So they came up with the demand. They said, put us a king over us. That, that, that's what we need. You know, that's the equivalent of a, a, a mother, uh, kind of a story of a mother who uh, has a few kids of her own, but she runs an orphanage. And she has lots of kids in this orphanage. And they're not her own. They're going to be adopted out. But she has a few, two children that are her own. It'd be the equivalent if those two children said, Mom, we don't want to be your children anymore. We would like to be an orphan. 
So we want to go sleep with orphans. We want to dress like them. We want to go and, and, and struggle with the same things they, they struggle with. We don't want to be your child anymore in many ways. We want to be an orphan. That's exactly, it's very similar to what Israel was asking God here. That they were saying, we don't want you to be our king anymore. We want to have a, a, a human to be our king. Because God was, Jehovah was their king at this point. And you see, Moses made the law, and Samuel was the judge. And then the third part was God was king. Well, they want to change that order. They wanted to uh, put into a man the ability to judge and, and fight battles. And so take that away from God. They were demoting themselves, Israel was. So the third observation we see is that Samuel counsels with God. Look, look at this in verse um, verse 6, it says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. So we don't know. Immediately, if he just turned around, I mean, if it's just right there in front of him, he started praying in front of them. Sometimes I call that passive-aggressive prayer, where you're praying, and you're talking about the person right there. And you're, you just, instead of telling them, you're praying, you know, Lord, and sometimes I'll do that with my kids, you know, when we're at the dinner table about to pray, and I'm like, God, please help these obstinate kids to follow what I say. We don't know if he did a passive-aggressive prayer, or we don't know if he walked out and went and prayed and said, let me go consult with God, and, he was, and then came back. We don't know that, but he consulted with God here. Samuel did. And then the last, well, the last two things is Samuel warns the leader. So he goes and counsels with God, and God says, listen, let me go ahead and tell you the ways, not the rights of a king, but the ways of a king. And God's just telling them what human nature is. Because human nature is to start to centralize. And we, we know the quote that says that power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the rest of that quote goes on that says good men are, I'm sorry, great men were usually bad men. And what he means by that is that men that we look back in history that said, man, they, were, they did great things or they, they had lots of power. Those people were usually bad men. Because they were corrupted. Because for, for God to have, be omnipotent and have all the power, it's, it's a part of his character. He has enough character to control that. But how many movies that are out that, when, that show that when someone gets so much power, they start to corrupt. It starts to corrupt them. You know, I'm not going to quote the Lord of the Rings, but the Lord of the Rings is all about that, right? It's about when you get too much power that you're, you don't have enough character to handle that, and it starts to own you. That's what God wanted to tell them. Um, and when he describes that, and so then Samuel's warning them, and he says this, um, if you look in, if you make observations that the word take or appoint is used eight or nine times in this passage. And you, you hear that, and I emphasize that, that the king is going to take from you, he's going to take you, you, know, you almost think he's talking about a swarm of locusts or leeches or a company that overstays their welcome three weeks. All they're doing is just taking, taking, taking. He's saying that's what the king's going to be like. He's going to be like a swarm of locusts or leeches that just extract at your, at, at your fault. They're going to take from you. They're not going to give. He's going to take. All you're seeing is what the king can give you. But let me inform you the other side. And for all those people out there that aren't detail-oriented people like me, I usually see the, the upside. I'm positive, right? Half, it's half full. I see the hope, what's going to happen. It's going to be great. 
And then, usually who I describe as down, uh, Debbie Downer kind of comes along, but really they're not. They're just telling me the other side. They're saying, yes, that's going to, ha- that possibly will happen. But here's what else can happen. They see the details. They see how this thing will play out. And I des- desperately need those kind of people in my life. So he says, it's interesting. He says in verse 11 through 13, he's going to take part of your family. In verse 14 and 15, he's going to take your food In verse 16 and 17, he's going to take your finances, how you generate income. And lastly, in verse 17 and 18, he's going to take your freedom. So your family, food, finances, freedom, he's going to extract from you those things. And and, and, you know, Samuel probably thought whenever he finally got to the freedom, that he's going to take your freedom. You're going to be a slave to him. That that would convince him, but nothing convinced him. Um. Finally, God grants the request, and Samuel sends them away. It's kind of an a anticlimactic. They're just kind of dispersed at that point. So what does all this mean? What's the interpretation of this? Is this really a passage about civics, about what is the theocracy of Israel and how it changes from judges to monarchy? I, I don't think it is. It's much more than that. It's much deeper than that, and it's much more close to home than that. This is really a passage about worldliness. Notice that the people, the elders, said twice, we want to be like all the other nations. That is the definition of worldliness. It's moving away from God. See, worldly people don't deny God. They just ignore him. They move away from him. Spurgeon said, the church is anemic in its influence over the world because the world has so much influence over the church. C.S. Lewis said it this way in a very picturesque way. He says, you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us up from this evil enchantment of worldliness. So worldliness is acting more like the world than acting like who we really are. I want to give you, I want to give you uh, something that, that Keller said, a kind of a, a, a picture of how to to think about this. And, and we've used this analogy before. Consider your soul or who you are as a boat. And, and God calls us to be in the world, not of the world. So when we're a boat, you're, you're in the water, you're acting like a boat. But when the water gets in you, you cease to be a boat. You just become a reef for fish, right? And so imagine this boat has oars on it and it has sails. And Keller, Tim Keller gives three different, or I'm sorry, four different ways to... Uh, really be diagnostic questions you need to ask yourself. And the first one is, are you sailing? Is the wind, this is really when the wind is to your back. And God is real in your heart. You feel his love and your prayers seem to be answered. You really sense God speaking to you in the scriptures. And when you have conversations with others, when you're having fellowship, you're seeing, you're starting to connect the dots that God is saying something to you. And the disciplines of grace are not so much out of duty, they're out of delight. So the question is, are you sailing right now? Secondly, another question is, are you rowing? So you're either one of these four. You're moving somewhere between these four, up or down or side to side. And I really see sailing and rowing together. Rowing is more, is more duty than delight. Often God seems distant. You struggle with doubts, and you don't give, but you don't give in to self-pity or pride. You row beside, despite the dryness. 
So God seems a bit distant. You're struggling with, is he really good to you? Maybe. Maybe, but you, you don't give in to that. And you continue to give yourself to the disciplines, the means of grace. Are you rowing? Third question, are you drifting? This, this is all the conditions of number two, but you're not rowing. So God seems distant. He seems dry, but you're not rowing. You give in to self-pity and pride, and you feel sorry for yourself. You feel justified by where you are. You resent, you're resenting God in some ways, and you start to drift into self-indulgent means. You start to comfort yourself with more food, more drink, more sexual practices, or anything. I mean, it could be playing video games, flying your drone. It could be work. Our heart has the endless ability to make anything an idol to escape God. So are you drifting? Are you giving in to self-pity and pride and then self-medicating yourself? The last one is, are you sinking? So are you sailing? Are you rowing? Are you drifting? Are you sinking? Eventually, you drift away from the safety of the shipping lanes, as it were, he says. You lose forward motion, and hardness is, moves into your heart. Pity, resentment, bitterness towards God and others. You're ripe for abandonment of the faith. The next wave of disappointment comes your way, or the next wave of pain that comes your way. You're right from just bagging it and saying, that's it. I'm walking away. So these are four questions to ask yourself. And I really believe that, that, that Israel was, was, was drifting here and moving. And we see Israel's life. Sometimes they are sailing. And, and really, last, a few weeks ago when Daryl preached in First, I mean, First Samuel 7, Really think 1 Samuel 7 probably was 30 to 40 years before 1 Samuel 8. So they had a huge victory, and they made, made a stack of stones called an Ebenezer, and they, they threw away their idols. They were really sailing at that point. They saw that God was their king. God was their commander. And they, they were walking away from their former ways of life, and they weren't acting like the nations around them. They were acting like Israel. And then they started drifting. Drifting, drifting. And that usually can happen from one generation to the next. So that by the eighth chapter, they finally see a justification for why they need a king, which is, well, Samuel, you're getting old and your kids aren't following your way, so we need, we need to change the sheriff, so to speak. So are you sailing? Are you rowing? Are you drifting? Are you sinking? The means of grace are, that's rowing. So you're responsible for your, what you're responsible for. And that's the means of grace. That's prayer. That's word. That's fellowship and evangelism. And when the winds come up, you'll move swiftly ahead. So when God decides to move, you'll be ready. That's where preparation meets opportunity. Now, there's really three ways you can view worldliness. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 John 1.15. It's in the back of the Bible, all the way back, right before you get to the big book of Revelation. So if it's easy, go to the maps, 
Take a left to get a Revelation. Take another left to get a 1 John. And 1 John 2 says this, 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All right, so there's really three ways to view worldliness. Is that there are some people in Christendom that draw, and maybe outside of Christendom, they draw a very, they take a sharpie out and they draw a line, a big circle. And they say everything inside the circle, a certain kind of dance, maybe it's not, maybe dance is outside the circle. Uh, but certain kind of music, certain kind of movies, certain kind of how you dress, Everything inside that is godliness, and everything outside that line is worldliness. Um, then there's another group that, that they're so tired of those kind of people with the Sharpies. They get their erasers out, and they try to blur the line there, and they go, we cannot think of worldliness as something you do or don't do. And so they just erase the line there. So really, you see those two responses. One's a very religious, moralistic view. And the other one is a very irreligious view, kind of a reaction to the, the moralist. But I think n neither one of those are correct. Because if you really look at this, verse 16, it says this, For that, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you really study that, he's talking about the heart there. So it's, it's interesting in that verse, he says, all that's in the world is really in your heart. So worldliness or godliness is not drawing a line and saying anything inside the circle is good and everything outside the circle is bad. And then the reaction to that, erasing the line, is, is not good either. John Calvin said it this way. He said, so it, it's really a heart. He said the evil desire, I'm sorry, the evil in our desires lies not in what we want, but the fact that we want too much. So it's not necessarily what we want. Though there are, the scriptures are clear, there are certain things that if you desire, it's, it's wrong. But for the most part, most of us here in the church want something so much, too much. And that becomes an idol. That becomes our God. If you ever pray, God, please, please give me fill in the blank. There's a possibility whatever's in that blank is your God. And you're using God just as a genie, a divine genie, to get you that. That has become your God. So it's not a hard line. It's not a race circle. It's really a heart. So who are we? If you still have your the Bible there, I want you to look at Ephesians 4. Let me see how much time we have here. So Ephesians 4 I want you to write down, uh, we're, gonna have, we're not going to have time to go into all these passages, so write down Ephesians 4, 17 through 30. I'm giving you homework. Um, you can write out beside that. Ephesians 4 really says, don't want like the other nations. The words it uses is Gentile, but you could substitute all the other nations for that. Okay? So you said, don't want like all the other nations. Want like a child of the true king. How we walk, how we live our life should be different. Another passage, Titus 2, 11 through 15. I will read this. This is a very piercing, uh, very telling passage here. Titus 2, 11 through 
15, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, all kinds of people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. There's the word. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawless deeds and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. So that's God's desire. Jesus' desire is to have a people of his own possession that look different than everybody else. And there's a passage in 1 Peter that we often quote. I think it's 1 Peter 2.9. It says that we're a kingdom of priests. Right after that, it says that we are a peculiar people. The King James says, a peculiar people. It means that we should look strange. Now, I'm not advocating that we go make funny hats and funny clothes and walk out and say, hey, I'm a Christian. But we, we should maximize our similarities with the world where it's amoral. But we need to heighten our differences when there's a moral issue there, where it's an issue of who we are. It says over and over that we're to throw off how we're to look or the old ways of how the Gentiles act. But listen, it's not in just what you do. It's, it's really the desires of your heart. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in that Sermon on the Mount, God's, uh, Jesus says over and over, you've heard it said, and he will quote maybe what the the uh, elders of Israel have said, and he said, but I say, do this. So he said, you've heard it said, if you lie with, another, with a woman, that's adultery. But I say, if you look upon a woman lustfully in your heart, then you've committed it. You've heard it say that if you go kill somebody, that is murder. I say that if you have hate in your heart, that is murder. You see, Jesus keeps bringing it back to the heart. It's not, and, and it's so easy for us to run amok one way or the other, to run on one side and say, well, it's about what we do. And then run on the other side and say, no, it's not about what we do. Our, our, our actions don't matter. And really, Jesus is not talking about it either. He's stepping back and saying, it starts in your heart. That's where worldliness starts. And that's where godliness starts. He wants to purify for himself a people of his own possession. That's a great passage to remember. Finally, application. So we've talked about what is, what is this passage saying? What does it really mean? And then lastly, what does it mean for me? So a few things I want you to see here. One, that Christ is here in this passage in 1 Samuel 8. Christ is here. Notice that, that God, Jehovah, was king, he was a good king, and he was rejected by his people. This, is, this won't be the last time that God's rejected as king of his people. Do you remember what was nailed up above Jesus on the cross? King of the Jews. It was a little bit of a spite that Pilate put in there against the elders of Israel, but it said the truth nonetheless that he is king of the Jews, and he was rejected by his people. So you see a fore, foreshadowing of what will happen to Christ, that his people will say, no, we don't want you as a king. And they'll appoint, just like the Jews in the New Testament time appointed, uh, said, we want Caesar our king. Here in 1 Samuel 8, they say, we want you to appoint us another king, a man of one of the tribes. Christ was right, but he was rejected, just like Jehovah is a good king, but was rejected. So Christ is here in this passage. Secondly, see that you're here in this passage. 
Uh, if, if you put yourself, sometimes when I read the scriptures or I watch a movie or hear a story, I try to put myself, where would I be, what character would I be in the story? And of course, um, you know, whenever I watch Braveheart, like some of my other brothers, we always want to, we want to be William Wallace, right? We always want to be the hero. But we, really, we're probably more like William the Bruce. We betray goodness. We are the, the elders of Israel here. We're the ones that are rejecting God. Anytime we sin, we're saying, I want another king in charge. Because maybe I can manipulate that king. I know I can't manipulate you, God. But we slide towards worldliness, and it's subtle and seductive. I want you to, as application, I want you to go back and ask yourself the diagnostic questions about where your soul is. Are you sailing? Are you rowing? Are you drifting? Are you sinking? And specifically in these areas, when it comes to media. Some people have called media now so pervasive that it is the second atmosphere that we breathe. You know, in your, if you go to work on, on, in the morning, you probably have ingested more media in that morning time from when you woke up to when you get to work than most people 200 years ago had in a lifetime. So what do you do with your media? How do you, are you entertained by it? Do you have to have it? Do people see typically just the top of your head because you're always on your smartphone? So in media, in music, what kind of music do you listen to? Everybody that's had a teenage kid has had this argument. I don't want you to listen to that. Why? I'm not listening to the words. Well, you know, a good comeback to that is, well, you're establishing a habit of not listening to words. What do you do here on Sunday morning? Do you just listen to the beat and not listen to the words? It is, it is subtle. The devil does not come with a red suit and pitchfork. He comes dressed beautifully. He comes dressed as a, a great music. And so he can subtly come into you. And again, music's amoral, but it's what you're listening to. Your materials, with the stuff that you have, how you, your makeup, how you dress, are you, being, are you sliding towards worldliness? Your mastery of the job, do you tend to give yourself more to your work than to your God? Well, earlier, uh, Daryl read Matthew 16, where, where Jesus is asking this question. Another diagnostic question. He was asking, would you gain, it's really a bet, he said, would you get, if you could gain the whole world, would you do that? But you would lose your soul. Or do you want to lose your soul and you're going to gain something much more? Well, if you're dr drifting or sinking, then you're giving yourself to the world. You're betting on the world instead of your soul. I pray if you're drifting or you're sinking to come back. I pray if you're rowing to continue to row, the winds will come. And if you're sailing, praise be to Jesus that you're delighting in God. May we all delight in him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this good word from the Old Testament. This, this cautionary tale, this true story of how the, the, Israel's, the, the, the elders of Israel boldly and foolishly 
said, we don't want King Jehovah, we want a man king. God, and you, you warned them and you warned us that, that sin is like iron pyrite. It is fool's gold. It appears shiny and glistening, but in the end it is, it is not what it has promised to be. God, I pray that this message would be a check for those who are, who are drifting or sinking. It would be an encouragement to those who are rowing or sailing. May we all be contemplative and ask and engage with you, Holy Spirit, and not ignore you. King Jesus, thank you for being our king and redeeming us as a people of your own possession. Amen. Please stand with us as we close out. As Blair mentioned, we're like the elders asking for another king, and we go right out of safety and security into lostness when we seek another king. But the true king, he will return. And hopefully we will want him to return, and we will be ready to receive him, knowing he's all we have. was lost in darkest night yet thought I knew the way the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave I had no hope that you would all a rebel to Suffered in my place.
Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be my only boast is you. gave us that good warning exhortation against worldliness and if anyone wants to pray with one of the elders care team members down front we'd love to do that with regard to that worldliness uh in in c.s lewis and screw tape letters wormwood and screw tape would surely want us to think oh worldliness everybody struggles with that don't worry about it well in one sense yes we all do all the more reason to be praying with somebody wrestling against that Hear now this benediction that Blair wanted us to have from 1 John chapter 2. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. Amen.